from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people with so many different explanations of what's going on with, um, what's his name? Trump? Um, you know, conspiracy theories left and right. Uh, um, one thing it is possible to know for a certainty is that uh, Donald Trump through throughout his, let's call it a career, has um, availed himself of the services of a vast multiplicity of attorneys with uh, different specialties, but all of which boil down to trying to please Donald Trump, which ain't easy. They'll tell you that. Um, and as regards the current, the momentarily current controversy regarding the traveling of uh, certain classified documents from their home to his home, um, there are lots of people suggesting that it is basically a problem of his own making. So it may well be time to ask. Hey, what happened? Here's uh, an attempt at an explanation uh, from, among other places, CNN, The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, sort of aggregated together for your listening pleasure. A couple of weeks ago, as I was mentioned on this show last week, as a matter of fact, Jim Trustee. How can you not? Jim Trusty uh, resigned from the president, uh, former president's lawsuit against CNN. He cited irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. CNN? Why, what, what? Yes, he sued CNN last October for defamation, <laughs> defamation, seeking $475 million in damages. I must have missed that. That lawsuit accuses the network of trying to sabotage his political career by focus on uh, the times when he didn't tell the truth and the misstatements about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And uh, last week, Trustee left the legal team representing Trump for, on the uh, mishandling classified document charges. Right after that happened, right after Trustee defended him on CNN, Trump announced he's switching his. Uh, defense team. There was already trouble among Trump's legal staff at that point. They had reportedly so much internal conflict, according to the New Republic, it was hindering their ability to defend the former president in the classified documents case. Trustee and lawyer Jim Palatori, who quit Trump's team in May, took particular issue with Trump's senior advisor, an in-house counsel, you may have heard this name before, Boris Epstein. The Guardian reported that trustee and parlatory disliked Epstein so much they began withholding information from him. Trustee also chafed at having to run all his decisions by Epstein. First, he felt Boris was not a trial lawyer, focusing too much on Trump's PR issues, not legal ones. Things got so bad, trustee and parlatory began withholding information from another Trump lawyer, Evan Corcoran, 
because they worried he would brief Epstein without their knowledge. That hobbled the team's ability to build a defense. The different factions had no clue what the others were doing. Trump was charged with, of course, 37 counts for keeping national defense information without authorization, making false statements, and conspiring to obstruct justice. A different Trump lawyer, Christopher Kies, attempted to convince Trump to return the documents he'd taken from the White House and reach a settlement with the DOJ. He was, according to the Washington Post, rebuffed by more pugilistic members of Trump's team. That adjective from the Post. Oh, to be a Trump lawyer right now, or ever. Hello, welcome to the show. Nothing matters, no mad, mad world, and no mad hatters. No one's pitching, cause there ain't no batters in Coconut Grove. Don't bar the door, there's no one coming. The ocean's roar will dull the drumming of any city, thoughts of city way. The ocean breeze is cool. My mind, the salty days are hers and mine Just to do what we want Tonight we'll find a tune that's ours And softly she will speak the stars until sun up It's all from having someone knowing just which way your head is blowing Who's always warm like in the morning In Coconut Grove The ocean breeze is cool My mind, the salty days are hers and mine just to do what we wanted Tonight we'll find a dune that's ours and softly she will speak the stars until sun up It's really true how nothing matters No mad, mad world and no mad hatters no one's pitching cause there ain't no battles in Coconut From Santa Monica, California, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. In case you need uh, some more information on Boris Epstein or Stein or Stein or Stein, here here's what he was saying a couple of years ago. 
This election was stolen from President Trump. President Trump won the 2020 election. It's loyalty like that that keeps you around the White House. At least that White House. And now... Looks like What's Elon up to this week? Well, a Tesla whistleblower has leaked 100 gigabytes of data to a German news outlet, Handelsblatt, containing thousands of customer complaints that raise serious concerns about the safety of Tesla's full self-driving features. This is according to The Verge. The complaints which were reported across the U.S., Europe, and Asia from 2015 to 22. During this period, Handelsblatt says Tesla customers reported over 2,400 self-acceleration issues and 1,500 braking problems, including 139 reports of unintentional emergency braking and 303 reports of phantom stops from false collision warnings. Some of the incidents mentioned by Handelsblatt include descriptions of how cars, quote, suddenly brake or accelerate abruptly. You hate those sudden things that also occur abruptly, don't you? While some drivers safely gained control of their vehicle, Handelsblatt said others ended up in a ditch, hit walls, or crashed into oncoming vehicles. That sounds abrupt as well. And Twitter is fueling its business with countless infringing copies of musical compositions. That's according to a lawsuit filed in Tennessee by a long list of music publishers who cite nearly 2,000 tracks ranging from the Seinfeld theme to the weekend's Save Your Tears. This is reported in the Register of the British Tech Journal. Publishers say the pervasive infringing activity is no accident, claiming that the company that owns Twitter, X Corp, has repeatedly failed to take the most basic step of swiftly removing access to the infringing music. The $250 million suit claims the platform is, quote, rife with copyright infringement, unquote, and was so both before and after its sale to Elon. Suit complains Twitter has also continued to assist known repeat, repeat infringers with their infringement. Can I help you with that, sir? Here, here's how you infringe. Those repeat inf offenders do not face a realistic threat of Twitter terminating their accounts. Thus, the cycle of infringement continues across the Twitter platform, according to the music publishers. At the heart of the lawsuit is the fact Twitter has no licensing agreement in place with any of the artists or their reps. That would be unlike YouTube or TikTok. The lawsuit claims that X Corp thus profits from copyright infringement at the expense of music creators to whom Twitter pays nothing and that the engagement with the music clips is helping the company drive up its own advertising sales. That's Twitter's main source of revenues. According to the filing, audiovisual tweets, and especially ones containing publishers' copyrighted works, attract and retain users to the Twitter platform, drive ad impressions, and advance Twitter's key metrics and economic interests, unquote. They also point 
out that they have existing licensing contracts with other big tech platforms with which Twitter competes. Your TikTok, your Facebook, your Instagram, your Snapchat, and of course, Google's YouTube. Google wasn't always so copacetic with the music industry. It's faced down various lawsuits over the widespread presence of copywriting infringing music on YouTube. Various critics have said its business model is predicated on the use of copyright infringing content. Google has always maintained its protection of artists' rights is robust. Thank you, Google. Thank you, man. And that it responds to takedown requests swiftly as well as contributing to revenue streams via licensing agreements with music publishers, who, of course, never profit at the expense of music creators. The uh, source of this story, the British tech journal The Register, contacted Twitter for comment. As usual, the response was a poo emoji. Musk is so great now, wait till he grows up. And now, Nate, uh, ladies and gentlemen, news of crypto winter. It is kind of chilly in here. Decentralized finance protocol, Sturdy Finance, that's a company, not a, uh, not a apparently not a description, has lost 442 Ether. That's a cryptocurrency worth almost $800 at the time of uh, the report from Cointelegraph to a security exploit. The attacker exploited a vulnerability that eventually manipulated a faulty price oracle, allowing them to drain funds from the protocol. You like how they uh, kind of use words differently in crypto land? I think that's part of the uh, part of the whole deal, part of the charm. Um, earlier this month, blockchain security firm Peck Shield alerted Sturdy Finance, reporting a transaction that seemed to be related to a price manipulation. About an hour later, the D5 protocol, Sturdy Finance, said they were aware of the exploit and responded by pausing all of their markets and assuring its users that no additional funds were at risk. All markets have been paused, said Sturdy Protocol. Oh, sorry, Sturdy Finance. No additional funds are at risk. No user actions are required at this time. We'll be sharing more information as soon as we have it, they said. Despite that swift response from the platform, PeckShield confirmed the attacker was able to transfer almost $800,000 to a crypto mixer called Tornado Cash. The security firm also noted that the root cause of the exploit was a faulty price oracle. I'm grateful they still even pretend to use English. The blockchain security company BlockSec highlighted that the hack was done through a re-entrancy attack, common method hackers use to withdraw funds from DeFi protocols. You don't want to know more about that, do you? Scammers were able to take control of eight Twitter accounts of prominent crypto community members and promote crypto scams. According to blockchain detective Zach XBT, scammers have total, uh, stolen almost $1 million in crypto after taking control of the accounts of a famous DJ and uh, crypto hater Peter Schiff. 
so I'm not the only one. Meanwhile, Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange, said on Friday it was leaving the Dutch market because it had been unable to meet registration requirements to operate as a virtual asset service provider. It's the latest in a string of setbacks for Binance, according to Reuters. Um, The SEC has charged the company with evading securities laws. A spokesperson for Binance, which had been operating in the Netherlands without permission from regulators, said the company had tried many alternative avenues to meet Dutch registration requirements. Existing Dutch users will only be able to withdraw assets from the platform. The Dutch Central Bank which registers financial service providers in the country, said it had previously warned uh, Binance that it was operating in the Netherlands without proper registration and then fined it for the same reason. Binance has also recently announced plans to leave Cyprus, Canada, and Australia. And stablecoin TrueUSD lost its dollar peg in the early hours of June 10th after a pause in minting activities through its technology partner, Prime Trust. Oh, well, that sounds like you could rely on it. Prime Trust, the fifth largest stablecoin by market cap, traded uh, at its lowest point at 99 cents. That's less than a dollar. It's supposed to be pegged to the dollar, the DPEG, that is to say it's no longer pegged at the same value as a dollar, comes on the heels of an announcement from True USD, which reported the minting of TUSD was paused until further notice. TUSD minting and redemption services by other banking partners than Prime Trust remain unaffected, allowing for seamless transactions, according to the company. The stablecoin has repeatedly lost its United States dollar peg over the last 12 months. It's unclear if the halt in minting is related to recent rumors of insolvency surrounding Prime Trust. Company based in Nevada. Oh, well then. Laid off a third of its staff in January. It was also acting as a middleman for Binance US holding its customer funds through banking partners amid the debanking of crypto businesses in the United States. Man, I got to get in on this. It's sounding too hot for words. Oh, well, it's a crypto winter, but it's it, 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 it's a hot winter. And now... News of the Godly. As more people sue the Catholic Church alleging that priests abuse them as children, they may run into an issue in Maine they wouldn't in most other states. If they're successful in court, they may not have a clear path to receive damages. This is from the Bangor Daily News. That's because charitable organizations in Maine, which solicit contributions from the public and can include religious entities, appear to have some immunity in negligence lawsuits, that's due to a little-known doctrine originating in British common law from the 1800s. Welcome to history time. Maine lawmakers are debating whether to revoke so-called charitable immunity. 
many members of the legislature call it a remaining barrier to justice for people who were molested as children. Charitable immunity is why at least one man who's spoken publicly about being sexually abused in his first year in Cheveris High School in Portland, Maine, has not pursued a lawsuit. That shows the difficulty adults face in formally reconciling with the trauma they may have carried for decades. You could go to court, you could win a case, win a judgment, but they could hide behind the charitable immunity defense and not have to pay, says Michael Sweat of North Yarmouth, Maine. He's the former president of Puritan Medical Products, says Charles Malia, a former teacher and track coach at the Jewish Catholic College Prep School. Sexually abused him one time in 1972 at Malia's apartment in Portland, the only person Sweat told was his wife until 25 years later. His 14-year-old son was about to attend the same school and come to face with the same guy. Malley admitted to the main Sunday telegram in 2000 to abusing former students in the 1960s and 70s. Stories of such victims helped propel a change in state law to make it possible for people to sue over claims of child sexual abuse regardless of when the abuse occurred given the fact that many folks in that situation don't talk about it until years later, usually after the statute of limitation expires. But despite abolishing that statute for certain types of child sexual assault, Maine is one of a handful of states that still shields charities from liability in matters involving negligence, such as negligent hiring, supervision, or retention of an employee. That immunity was originally adopted to protect charities' assets. However, it does not shield charities and lawsuits resulting from the intentional act of a defendant. There shouldn't be a way to not fully compensate somebody for the damages they suffered, says uh, legal director for the Maine Coalition Against Sexual Assault, Melissa Martin. But right now, there's a question about whether it applies in some negligence cases, and that was a barrier from some child abuse survivors who are trying to bring those cases. Recent child sexual abuse lawsuits have asserted that organizations like the Roman Catholic Diocese of Portland, which operates churches, were negligent for not telling families in the public about known abuse, which might have prevented further abuse from happening. The lawsuits also say some Catholic-related organizations were negligent for not removing members of their clergy who abused children. Instead, this will sound familiar, reassigning them. Sweat eventually connected with nearly a dozen other former students who said they were also abused at the school. Over the years, news stories have documented their continued push for Cheveris to accept responsibility. In 2011, the school issued a statement referencing Malia, awareness of his and abuse by another school figure, came to light in the late 1990s and remains a sad and well-publicized part of Cheveris's past, it said. It is through continued education and vigilance that we can prevent these abuses from ever happening again. Unquote. The school said it offered to pay for counseling for victims, removed Malia's name from the school track, and added preventative measures such as increased background checks and required training for coaches and teachers. The Maine legislature c- 
codified and limited charitable immunity in 1965, capping damages for organizations found to enable child sexual abuse at the limit of their insurance coverage. This status earned Maine a D-minus grade from Child USA, a nonprofit advocacy group based in Philly. 37 other states have ended charitable immunity entirely or never recognized it. A few years ago, the Maine Supreme Court, in a broad examination of charitable immunity, found it was, quote, a doctrine in general disrepute, unquote. But it's up to the legislature to decide whether to get rid of it. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Some love you had a plan Some loving it happened so fast you said I met a girl who's crazy for me Summer days drifting away
From Santa Monica, this is the show. And um, you've heard, I believe, at least on this program, if not elsewhere, uh, more and more recently about what are being called forever chemicals, a class of chemicals, PFAS, that uh, really don't ever go away. The chemical industry took a page out of the tobacco playbook when they discovered and suppressed their knowledge of health harms caused by exposure to PFAS, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. That's according to an analysis of previously secret industry documents by researchers at UC San Francisco. A uh, paper published at the end of May in the Annals of Global Health it examines documents from DuPont and 3M. They are the largest manufacturers of PFAS. The paper analyzes the tactics the industry used to delay public awareness of the toxicity of the chemicals and in turn delay regulations governing their use. PFAS are widely used in clothing, household goods, and food products. So in you and on you, and are highly resistant to breaking down. That's how they got their nicknames. They're now ubiquitous in people and the environment. Quote, these documents reveal clear evidence that the chemical industry knew about the dangers of PFAS and failed to let the public, regulators, and even their own employees know the risks. That's uh, a former senior scientist and policy advisor at the EPA, and a senior author of the paper says it's the first time these PFAS industry documents have been analyzed by scientists using methods that were designed to expose tobacco industry tactics. Secret industry documents were discovered in a lawsuit filed by an attorney, the first to successfully sue DuPont for PFAS contamination and whose story was featured in a film called Dark Waters. Robert Billot is his name. He gave the documents, which spanned 45 years from 1961 to 2006, to producers of a documentary, The Devil We Know, who donated them to the UC San Francisco Chemical Industry Documents Library. Having access to these documents allows us to see what the manufacturers knew and when, but also how polluting industries keep critical public health information private, said another author of the uh, research, Nadia Gaber. She, she led the research as a uh, fellow and is now an emergency medicine resident. Quote, this research is important to inform policy 
and move us towards a precautionary rather than reactionary principle of chemical regulation, unquote. Gaber. Little was publicly known about the toxicity of PFAS for the first 50 years of their use. That's what uh, the author stated in the paper, The Devil They Knew, despite the fact that, quote, industry had multiple studies showing adverse health effects at least 21 years before they were reported in public findings, unquote. The paper states, quote, DuPont had evidence of PFAS toxicity from internal animal and occupational studies that they didn't publish until in the scientific literature and failed to report their findings to EPA is required under the law. These documents were all marked as confidential, and in some cases, industry executives are explicit that they, quote, wanted this memo destroyed. Unquote. The, pa- the paper documents a timeline of what industry knew versus public knowledge and analyzes strategies the chemical industry used to suppress information or protect their harmful products. So, f- for example, as early as 1961, according to a company report, Teflon's chief of toxicology discovered that Teflon materials had, quote, the ability to increase the size of the liver of rats at low doses. Rats were low dosers, apparently, and advised that the chemicals, quote, be handled with extreme care and that contact with the skin should be strictly avoided, unquote. According to a 1970 internal memo, DuPont-funded Haskell Laboratory found C8, one of thousands of PFASs, to be, quote, highly toxic when inhaled, and moderately toxic when ingested, unquote. So, I recommend ingesting. And in a 1979 private report for DuPont, Haskell Labs found that the dro- uh, dogs who were exposed to a single dose of PFOA, another one of the thousands of PFASs, quote, died two days after ingestion, unquote. In 1980, DuPont and 3M learned that two of eight pregnant employees who had worked in C8 manufacturing gave birth to children with birth defects. The company didn't publish the discovery or tell employees about it. And the following year, an internal memo stated, quote, We know of no evidence of birth defects caused by C8 at DuPont, unquote. Despite these and more examples, DuPont reassured its employees in 1980 that C8, quote, has a lower toxicity, like table salt, unquote, referring to reports of PFAS groundwater contamination near one of DuPont's manufacturing plants. A 1991 press release claimed, quote, C8, one of the PFASs, has no known toxic or ill health effects in humans at concentration levels detected. Media attention to PFAS contamination increased following lawsuits in 1998 and 2002, and DuPont emailed the EPA asking, quote, We need EPA to quickly, like first thing tomorrow, say the following, that consumer products sold under the Teflon brand are safe, and to date there are no human health effects known to be caused by PFOA, unquote. In 2004, the EPA fined DuPont for not disclosing their findings on PFOA. The 16... $0.45 million settlement was the largest civil penalty obtained under 
U.S. environmental laws at the time. But it was just a small fraction of DuPont's 1 billion annual revenues from PFOA and C8 in 2005. So, don't you go worrying about DuPont. And now... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. A new study of hermit crab behavior in the United Kingdom. I know you've been wondering about that. Showed that short-term exposure to microplastics impairs their assessments and decision-making processes. Hermit crabs, ladies and gentlemen, make decisions just like you and me. Hermit crabs that were exposed to microplastics were less likely and slower than the control group to move to a better shell when they were offered one. Instead, they preferred a worse shell. The study was published in the scientific journal Animals. And now, some news of our friend the atom. The operator of the wrecked Fook Nuke plant began tests this week of newly constructed facilities for discharging that uh, radioactive wastewater. Oh, it's been treated, but it's radioactive still a little bit. You know, a, sm- a, a, a smidge uh, into the uh, sea. That's where they're going to discharge it. This plan is strongly opposed, opposed by local fishing communities and neighboring countries, according to the AP. The tests at Fook use fresh water instead of the treated water, TEPCO says. Plant worker, uh, workers examined pumps and emergency shutdown equipment at the newly constructed seaside facility. It will dilute the treated water with large amounts of seawater. That water then enters an undersea tunnel and is released into the ocean about half a mile from the coast. The undersea tunnel and other facilities are near completion. The plant has faced fierce protests from local fishing communities concerned about safety and reputational damage. You know, hot fish. Nearby countries, including South Korea, China, and Pacific Island nations, have also raised safety concerns. Japan's government has set up a fund to promote Fook seafood hotter than ever, and provide compensation in case sales fall due to safety concerns. Fishing officials said they were still opposed to the plan when they met with the uh, industry minister Nishimura when he visited Fuku. We stand by our opposition, said the head of the Fukushima Fisheries Association. But he said the association supports progress in the plant's decommissioning and hopes to continue the dialogue. At the moment, he said, our positions remain wide apart. Japanese officials say that the diluted water will be released into the ocean over decades, making it harmless to people in marine life. Yeah, decades will do that. Japan has sought support from the International Atomic Energy Agency to gain credibility and ensure that the measures meet international standards, whatever those might be. Some scientists say the impact of long-term, low-dose exposure to radionuclides, like the tritium in the water, is unknown 
and the release should be delayed. That's from the AP. And Kyoto News, a Japanese news source, uh, writes about the cleanup in Hanford, Washington, at a U.S. facility that made plutonium. Cleanup efforts, efforts continue there at the decommissioned facility, reports Kyoto News, but questions linger over whether the site has caused serious health issues for workers and local residents. Construction began on the Hanford site 80 years ago. Citizens of Nagasaki, where um, one of the first two nuclear bombs, A-bombs, were dropped, may not be the only victims of Hanford's plutonium production during its decades of operation U.S. citizens living near and mainly downwind of the site experienced severe health effects that they believe stem from the site's activities. Tom Bailey, who grew up and still resides just miles downwind from Hanford, conducted, along with a local journalist, a survey on surrounding farms in 1985. They began to have doubts, he did, at least. Nearly all the families living nearby suffered from cancer, birth defects, or thyroid disease. Well, that can happen. He says health issues could be attributed, those health issues, to radiation exposure. This led to the area being called the Death Mile by some journalists at the time. He said his wife, father, and three uncles all had cancer before passing away, while his two sisters also have cancer and take thyroid medicine. The year before he was born, his mother had a stillbirth. Bailey himself was born with birth defects on an iron lung when he was four. He vividly remembers encounters with men in spacesuits equipped with dosimeters to measure, radi- measure radiation levels walking on his farm. They would collect soil samples and even ask the farmers to uh, send the heads and feet of ducks and rabbits they would kill while hunting to Hanford for analysis. He began speaking out about the hardships and health problems that he attributed to the Hanford site. Many locals dismissed him as nuts or crazy. Some even mockingly referred to him as the -the glow-in-the-dark farmer. Documents declassified in the late 1980s showed that Hanford had indeed contaminated the surrounding farmland, air, farm animals, and crops with unsafe levels of radiation for years. Kyoto News quotes Hanford's latest estimate, released in 2022, that the total cost of the cleanup of the site is expected to range from $319 billion to $660 billion. That's a lot of dollars. With completion date not expected until at least fiscal 2078. Not real 2078, but fiscal 2078. It's out there somewhere. News of our friend the Atom. The transgender activist who went viral for posing topless at a recent White House event. Did you hear about that? He apologized this week. Rose Montoya attended a Pride event on the White House lawn hosted by the Biden administration along with hundreds of other gay and queer activists. Shortly thereafter, 
She posted a video on Instagram that showed a clip of her standing in front of the White House topless as she covered her nipples with her hands. In a new Instagram video, Montoya, who's also a model, apologized and vowed to articulate trans joy in a more effective way. In a quick moment of fleeting and overwhelming trans joy, I decided to do something unbecoming of a guest to the president of the White House lawn celebration, Montoya said. More so than ever before, I've learned how powerful and just how impactful my actions are and how impactful it is when we share our stories and experiences and how we do so with the world. I want to take this moment to apologize for the impact of my actions, unquote. The video of Montoya in front of the White House sparked a right-wing firestorm in the media. Commentators called her actions disrespectful. Montoya acknowledged the criticism and apologized to LGBTQ people who faced harassment as a result of the video. It was also never my intention to create a situation that might lead to harassment and harm of myself and others nor for trans joy, like my little moment of trans joy, to be weaponized by vile people of the opposition, Montoya said. The White House said the behavior was inappropriate and disrespectful. Deadline Berlin, the city has issued an apology to a major brothel and paid $269,000 in compensation over a police raid that happened seven years ago. Hundreds of police raided the Artemis Sauna and Brothel near Westkreuz West, West in 2016, detaining several people on suspicion of human trafficking, tax evasion, and other violations. Crimes like these, according to Deutsche Welle, can be common in the German sex work industry, which in and of itself is not illegal. The state of Berlin, they call it, apologizes for the pre-trial detention and the considerable disadvantage suffered by those accused at the time as a result of the search, the pre-trial detention, the indictment, and the statements made by the public prosecutor's office, said the city's judicial administration. The uh, apology and $269,000 compensation were part of a settlement reached by the city and the brothel operators. The case is now closed. But not the brothel. Guardian News and Media, the publisher of the Guardian and Observer newspapers, has apologized to several women who said that one of its star columnists, Nick Cohen, groped them or made unwanted sexual advantages. The company also told staff members it was changing how it investigates sexual harassment complaints. The apology and the policy changes following New York Times investigation last month in which seven women described Mr. Cohen grabbing them in pubs or in the newsroom or sending unwanted messages over the course of nearly two decades. The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, and chief executive, Anna Bateson, wrote in an email, We want to apologize to one of those women for your experience of sexual harassment by an observer member of staff and for the way your complaint was handled. That's not the only thing that was ha I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that, did I? You uh, are probably familiar, if you've been around 
this planet for a while with something called urban renewal, a policy that was carried out in America in many American cities in the 1960s. It usually involved the raising with a Z of uh, low income and um, minority neighborhoods uh, and replaced them with freeways or uh, other modern appurtenances. Uh, uh, now in Cincinnati, seven decades after residents were kicked out of their neighborhood in the West End to make way for the construction of Interstate 75, Cincinnati city leaders are apologizing to the West End community. Mayor Afteb Piraval and Council Member Scotty Johnson led a press conference this week during which they and other members of the city council apologized for the then-called urban renewal plan. It saw almost 25,000 people kicked out of their homes, businesses, and churches for construction of the interstate. Well, you got to have an interstate. What Dateline Wellington, New Zealand, the head of New Zealand's public radio station, apologized this week for publishing pro-Kremlin garbage, in his words, on its website after more than a dozen wire stories on the Ukraine war were found to have been altered. Most of the stories, which date back more than a year, were written by the Reuters news agency and were changed at Radio New Zealand to include Russian propaganda. A digital journalist from RNZ has been placed on leave pending the result of an employment investigation. The chief executive of RNZ, which is taxpayer-funded, said the network had found issues in 16 stories and was republishing them on its website with corrections and notes. He said he was commissioning an external review of the organization's editing process. It's so disappointing. I'm gutted. It's painful. It's shocking, he said. We have to get to the bottom of how it happened. He told the 9 to Noon program, did he, that typically only one person at RNZ had been required to edit wire service stories because those stories had already been subject to robust editing. But he said Radio New Zealand was now adding another layer of editing to such stories. He said he wanted to apologize to listeners, readers, staff, and the Ukrainian community. Quote, it's so disappointing that this pro-Kremlin garbage has ended up on our stories. It's inexcusable. Unquote. Speaking of Europe, Romania is recalling its ambassador to Kenya, back to Bucharest, and has apologized after that envoy in Nairobi, compared a monkey to African diplomats during a meeting he was chairing. Well, he was the chairman. The African group has joined us, Ambassador Dragos Tigao said when a monkey appeared at a window in the conference room. According to the letter demanding an apology seen by CNN, confidential documents obtained by CNN reveal outrage from African diplomats. They threatened to walk out of meetings attended by the ambassador. The African group would like to condemn in the strongest terms possible the insulting, racist, and degrading utterances, wrote South Sudan's ambassador to Kenya. He heads African diplomats in Nairobi. Another document said the deputy Russian ambassador reprimanded the Romanian official for the remarks who apologized, quote, after some hesitation. The uh, ambassador of uh, Romania to Kenya 
initially said his comments came during a long, heated, and highly debated meeting and were an attempt at, quote, relaxing the atmosphere, unquote. He later withdrew that comment. And you knew this was going to happen. The owner of a gym in Greenville, Alabama, has apologized to the public for sharing a meme on social media extolling, quote, straight pride, unquote. Craig Waller, owner of a 24-hour fitness, addressed the issue in a public video on the gym's Facebook page. Earlier this month, the gym posted a meme on its business page which read, straight pride, accompanied by an illustration of a bride and groom. Quote, it's natural, it's worked for thousands of years, and you can make babies. It's okay to be straight, unquote. The post was later taken down. A comment on the meme from the fitness center stated it was, quote, not meant to demeanor. Yeah, that was the way they said it. Anyone's lifestyle, but shows we can have pride in every marriage, option, and individuality. The reference to babies would, in my opinion, be referring to men now trying to give birth to children. Everyone can be proud of their relationship, unquote. Various comments to the message posted during Pride Month said, Craig Waller, the owner of the gym, should have understood that not everyone would agree with the message, while others pointed out it was also offensive to women who can't have children. Everyone took umbrage. Have some yourself, won't you? In a video posted over the weekend, Waller, standing next to an unidentified man who he said is homeless, appealed for help for him from the community. He then said, quote, to all those this last week, I want to appreciate everybody for their support, unquote. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, just before we conclude proceedings for another seven days, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Oil, gas, and coal representatives will have to disclose their industry ties at future climate meetings. That's what the UN now says. For years, fossil fuel employees have been able to attend without having to be clear about who they work for. Last year, over 600 industry participants were able to enter the COP27 meeting in Egypt. Campaigners say the UN ruling is the first step to limiting the influence of polluters. The new rules will be in place for the COP28 summit this November in Dubai, which happens to be one of the world's top oil producers. That from the BBC.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, some of my attorneys tell me that uh, it's perfectly okay to keep going. But, uh, you know, Boris Epstein says uh, we got to stop. So we got to stop. Uh, that's it for this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same radio station, or whenever you want it, on your audio device of choice. And it'd be just like it stopped being gray in Santa Monica if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. I mean, gray. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.